Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. Emma here, and I am so excited to be joined by Jennifer Hillier to talk about her new book, Things We Do in the Dark. This will be out July 19th. Welcome. Thank you so much, Emma, for having me. I'm I'm glad to talk to you today. We are so thrilled to have you here. And with great timing, it seems, I saw that your book, um, has moved you into the Library Reads Hall of Fame. Yes. Which we love yes. to hear. Um, so exciting. We know here at Overdrive, our library partners uh, and their patrons are voracious readers of yours. So that was so exciting that we get to speak to you um, the same time that this book has put you into the Hall of Fame. Oh, it's a, it's such an honor. I love librarians. I love libraries. And I didn't know that that there was a Hall of Fame until they told me. <laughs> I mean, I, it's, I'm in good company with all those other authors. It's amazing. It's, it was really nice to see the recognition. And I, I've been seeing this book, admittedly, everywhere for quite some time now. But it's nice to see that it's a Lone Star pick for July I saw that the lucky book of the month members got a, an early <laughs> copy in June. I saw yeah, it on the amazing things. I mean, so many amazing things have been happening for the book. It's, it's pretty wild actually. Yeah. <laughs> so, so first and foremost, can you tell us a little bit about things we do in the dark? Yes. Okay. The elevator pitch, which is something I'm constantly working on. Um, the things we do in the dark is a psychological thriller about a woman who wakes up to find her much older celebrity husband dead in a bathtub full of blood with her holding the straight razor that might have killed him. Uh, When she's arrested, she's obviously concerned about being charged with his murder, but more so um, she's terrified that her past will be discovered because it turns out that years and years before in a different life, a similar murder happened. And she ran away and reinvented herself. And she's terrified that she will be found out. That's pretty much it in a nutshell. That's a really good elevator pitch. (laughs) Thank you. you. I have to write it down and like memorize it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think it's hard. Um, You've got asked probably the same questions over and over about the book. Um, that maybe as you continue the press tour, (laughs) it'll get easier and easier. But I'm, I'm curious. Uh, with a, this really innovative question here, where the idea for this book came from? Oh, you know, it it sparked a long time ago. I was working on it um, in 2019. So well before I, anything virus hit the world mm-hmm. um, to that scope. And I remember thinking it was going to be a mother-daughter thriller. I had uh, a vision of a very, um, I wouldn't say evil. I mean, evil would probably fit Ruby, but just a bad mother, 
And I, I wanted to know what the relationship with her daughter would be like. And I was making progress on the book and then uh, the pandemic hit and I stopped writing for a year. I had a kid at home and we were virtual schooling all the way through first grade, which was awful. And I just was not in a headspace. And when I finally picked the book up back again, which would probably be the end of 2020, early 2021, I had no idea what I was trying to say. I had all these words and I couldn't figure out what my direction was. I couldn't remember. I didn't feel engaged with that story at all. And so I threw out 35,000 words, which is about a third of the novel. Wow. And was left with a bare bones, maybe 10,000 words, but at least those words felt good to me at the time. But I think the spark, like the real big kind of clincher for what the story would be about was, you know, like everyone else, I was binge watching everything I could on Netflix. There was a documentary called uh, The Trials of Gabriel Fernandez, which was a, a limited series documentary, which um, told the story of an eight-year-old boy who had died at the hands of his abusive mother and her abusive boyfriend. And they had done awful things to this child and he had been abused pretty much his whole life. And while there were people in his life, like teachers uh, who were aware that this was happening, not enough was done. He basically fell through the cracks. Um, the social workers couldn't help. The teachers couldn't help. And so he died at the age of eight. And it was a really, as a mom, it was a really painful documentary to watch. It made me sick to watch it. And I nearly turned it off so many times. But then I told myself, this is why this happened to Gabriel, because it was difficult for people to look. And so I really kind of forced myself to watch it because I felt I owed it to Gabriel, which sounds kind of funny since I don't know him, but I wanted to find, I wanted to know how this happened. And I was left with a takeaway of just complete bafflement as to how a mother could do this to her child, as to how she could be that violent. Um, did she come from a violent home herself? How does she sleep at night? Is she a sociopath? I think the answer would be yes. And then I started to wonder what would have happened to Gabriel had he lived. So if he'd survived that and they had managed at some point to move him out of that home and into a better space, would he have grown up and had a good life? Would he be a good person? Would he be like his mother? Um, and that's where the spark for Joey in the book came from. I wanted to know if Joey survived her mother, who would she be? And so that's really, it was really thanks to that documentary. That's really interesting. And that was one of the key takeaways for me from this book. It's actually quite hard to talk about thrillers without spoiling it almost um, impossible, <laughs> you know, anything. Cause you, you yeah. keep say like, Oh, there are twists. You're like, well, you're revealing there's multiple twists. And yes. so, but one of the things that I really took away from this was that Ruby is not a good mother in any way, shape or form. Nope. Um, None. And no that, qualities. <laughs> yeah. And that it, it, it was a really interesting dynamic to read about where I think this isn't hopefully giving too much away where you see the, the effects that Ruby's mother has had on her mm -hmm. a little bit. And then you see yep. the impact that she's had on her daughter right? and how you can kind of lean into that. Um, or you can go in the opposite direction. Right. And so I'm interested to know if there was anything else that drew you to sort of exploring that, that dynamic beyond, um, I know you said the documentary or just like, mm -hmm. um, I guess how, how you 
you know, deal with the trauma of like your parents and their parents and, or sort of how you set that straight for yourself or your children. Um, it yeah, seemed like it, there it, were layers there. It, it was, it was interesting to kind of peel back Ruby. Ruby was probably my favorite character to write because she didn't have to be anything other than who she was. Um, there was no pressure on me as a writer to make her likable or to make her relatable. Um, and that responsibility does come with when you're writing a main character, like a protagonist or something, you have to make that character someone people want to read about. But Ruby, she's the villain. And I wanted to figure out like why she was the way she was. And I don't even think I answered that question for myself because Ruby has a sister, Joey's aunt, um, who isn't like Ruby. You know, she's got some, you know, tendencies to be not a nice person either, but she's not at Ruby's level. And of course we meet their mother, Lola Celia, um, who obviously a lot of those behaviors stem from, but one daughter kind of went one way and, and raised three boys without abusing them. And, and one mother, one, one sister went the other way and, and raised Joey in a very different manner. And so I don't know that I was able to answer that question. I know that I was digging for the answer myself to go, give me a reason why Ruby is Ruby. But I think, you know, I think some people are born that way. And I think they're born that way. And there's then a set of circumstances, which then click certain things into place. You know, I don't know that it's black and white where you're born purely evil. Maybe that's true. Or whether a good person who's born good, I think we're all intrinsically good when we're born, then gets put in a situation where they're then turned into something else. Um, I think it's a bunch of factors. And so Ruby remains an enigma to me. And uh, she'll stay with me for a long time. But yeah, I, I really tried to explore to figure out how she got here. And, and I don't, I don't know that I figured it out. Yeah, that's so fascinating because she certainly is not somebody that I read and was like, oh, wow, what a great mother and a great person. But I think <laughs> oh. that's interesting when you know that that's the expectation and that she is, she is the villain of this story, that there's that sort of freedom and liberty there. Um, with that character. Mm -hmm. Now what's, what I loved about this book, and I'm curious when you are writing it, um, if this comes into play, but there are um, different chapters that focus on the past and then that focus on the present. There are sort of two different timelines unfolding interchangeably. If you go about writing it um, in a particular way, where you're focused on, you know, the, the past story versus the present story and just what your writing process was like to, to keep everything straight and (laughs) how that formulates. It was, I can tell you, honestly, it was awful. (laughs) (laughs) I had all of these scenes that I could see really clearly. And I started off writing about Paris um, and Jimmy and but then Paris had some stuff from her past that would pop up as I was writing the story because I don't outline. And so I didn't exactly know where all of this was going. And then the stuff from the past seemed to be just as interesting to me as the stuff that was happening in the present that I wanted to flesh that out. And I didn't think necessarily it would all make it into the book. I thought I needed to kind of write it so that I knew what it was and then I could hint at it. But those scenes grew and I got to probably three quarters of the way through the book. And I had all of these scenes and all of these timelines and everything felt important in a way that I couldn't articulate to myself. 
and I was in Scrivener. So I use Scrivener to help me keep things. Uh, I, I write in Word, but I use Scrivener to help me kind of organize scenes. And I was in Scrivener shuffling things around going, how do I want to structure this? Because I want all of this to stay in, but I don't know how to make it work. And I must have restructured the book, oh God, seven, eight times. Um, drove my editor nuts with all of the, the changes. I was, I was like, okay, same story, but I'm starting here now. <laughs> and this part is now part two. And this part is now part four. Uh, it was awful. It was really, really hard, but that is my process. And it's so inefficient. Not something I would ever recommend a writer do because I think I, I, I don't like to say waste because everything happens the way that it should. But if I could just tighten that somehow, if I could <laughs> think a little bit more linear and not drive myself crazy arranging and rearranging things, I think I would have a much more enjoyable writing process. Um, so I, I, you know, it was basically trial and error trying to figure out the best way to tell the story. Mm -hmm. um, there was, there was the possibility of doing it linear and just starting in the eighties and then working my way forward. But being a thriller, you know, it's nice to have things that we don't know kept from us as a reader and then surprise us with it later. Right. And I'm looking if it's linear, it's not going to be nearly as suspenseful. So it was about, okay, you know, there's the stripper era. There's the married, you know, married to a rich guy era. There's the eighties era. There's this era. It's like, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of different sort of time shifts, but I think the way that it ended up uh, was really, really well done in that you get those bits and pieces. You're starting to put things together, you know, from the context of the past to the context of the present. And I really enjoyed um, the writing. Your writing is so well done and vivid. And I could oh, so you. clearly see, you know, the scenes, um, you know, with Joey and I don't think this is, you know, a spoiler, but like in the strip club and like those, they're so vivid to flashing forward um, to the time in Seattle and some of those, those settings it was just so well done. I really felt 100% like immersed in this book. I will say I read this in like one and a half sittings, <laughs> which I think is impressive. <laughs> For um, that is a huge small child. A, that's a huge compliment to a thriller. It took me a long time to realize that that was a good thing. Because yes. I would be like, oh, I read your book really fast. And I read it like in one night, I just stayed up all night and read it. And I'm like, it took me a year to write that. <laughs> but now yeah. I'm like, no, that's a compliment. That means that the book was engaging and, and you wanted to keep going. So thank you so much. That means yeah. a lot. It was so gripping. I couldn't put it down. And I think what I do want to ask as well is because this book has quite an opening line um, <laughs> for books is where that line comes from in your process. Like if that was one of the first things you wrote, it sounds like um, as you were sort of putting the book together, um, things were rearranged, but I'm curious where that opening line came from in your writing process. My opening lines all come at the end. Okay. So when I finally settled on, okay, I've got all of these different scenes. I've got a hundred thousand words here, but how do they all fit together? And I'm doing the whole shuffling thing. Um, when I finally commit to a structure and I know this is where the book begins, I then know that I need to have a really impactful first few pages, you know, and I don't always nail the opening line because it's really hard, but I could picture her. Um, and obviously readers can see this in the first chapter. I can picture this woman who, you know, was dressed very casually in a tank top and a pair of, you know, like, I think she's wearing sweatpants or shorts. Um, funny how I forget those details now, but 
you know, being arrested in, you know, in this very at-home outfit and then being very cold in the back of this police car. And so, you know, as a woman, what, what, what happens to your body when you're very cold and you're wearing something very thin on top? Well, you know, your, your breasts do a thing. <laughs> and yeah. so I, I picture that and I, and I can imagine as she's sitting there, that's, she's very aware of this physical thing happening to her amongst all of the turmoil. It's, it's something that she, she's aware of. And so it was a fun way to start, start the book. And I didn't know how that would land. And I was waiting for my editor to tell me, we can't start with that. But he said, when I read the opening line, I laughed. I'm like, okay, we can keep it. Great. Yeah. It certainly got my attention. And so just for our listeners quick, the opening line of this book, so you'll have to pick it up to read more. It's there's a time and a place for erect nipples, but the back of a Seattle police car definitely isn't it. And I think that that's so true. And the description, like the, the description, um, and just the vivid setting from the opening page, this woman in the back of a police car in her like sleepwear and slippers, Mm -hmm. which I Mm love the description of the obnoxious slippers, (laughs) like so over the top and just like, you know, being accused of murdering her husband what a way to kick off the book. So no, this had me, this had me from the first line and from the first chapter um, and was just so addicting just to get to the root of like what was behind all of these characters. I thought this was great. Thank you Um, so much. I'm curious. This is a a little bit of a random question, Mm -hmm. but one of the characters in this book, Drew has a podcast called things we do in the dark. Yep. which is the, t- the title of the book. And I'm wondering which came first, um, the podcast name or the book title? They came at the same time, actually. I remember, oh, so titles and lousy at titles. So I think my two best titles from my older novels are Creep and Jar of Hearts, both of which I stole from songs. <laughs> songs t- some titles are not copyrighted, so you can, you can use them. And everything else was sort of like a, a discussion with me and, and my editor and whoever and my agent for this one. I didn't know what the title was going to be for a long time. I think I had proposed a couple of really terrible titles early on. And then I, I liked the word dark and I liked the word things and the original proposed title that I, I sent eventually with the manuscript was the things we do in the dark. Um, and I knew that was a risk because they would tell me that it was too long and they didn't tell me it was too long. They're like, yeah, it's a lot of words to fit on a cover. And I'm like, but no, look at this other book. You know, this book has a long title. The girls are also nice here. And this other book has a really long title. You know, and I really kind of advocated for it, which normally I don't always do because it's like, I suck at titles, I get it. Um, but when I, the things we do in the dark felt right. Um, I then thought that's the name of Drew's podcast as well. Um, and that also fit. And then we compromised at the end, me and the publisher. They're like, okay, we'll call it things we do in the dark. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> close enough. Good, great, perfect. Um, but yeah, at the same time, I think, and it, it ties into the book nicely. But if in the end they had said, this title is not working, I probably still would have kept Drew's podcast the same name. But I, I like that they're the same. I like that they're the same as well. It's like a little bit meta, which I enjoy. <laughs> yeah. And it sounds like a podcast I would listen to. It definitely I know, sounds right? like one. yeah. I know. And and I, I picture Drew as having this honey-like voice when he's talking to his listeners, you know. And 
I don't know. I, 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 and it's all, you know, it's based on a lot of podcasts that I, I've listened to as well. So it's, you know, it was fun to write about it. Yeah, I really enjoyed that element as well, as we are recording this interview for a podcast. So we've got lots <laughs> of layers there that I enjoy. Um, I know that you uh, have a personal affinity for um, Seattle and Toronto, um, the location set in this book. And I'm just curious if that was the reason um, for setting these these stories in those two locations, or if, if it, you know, was that and that they just fit really nicely. I, I, you know, I, I grew up in Toronto, born and raised, um, and I'm in a suburb of Toronto right now, which is now where I live. But I, I was, you know, like a lot of writers, not able to get my voice right, or I, you know, I wrote for a long time and not anything worthy of publication, and not even comfortable to pursue any type of publication. It wasn't until I moved to Seattle back in 20, 2007 that I felt inspired to write. And I don't know if it was the weather, if it was all of the gloom, all of the coffee, um, or all of the serial killers that come out of the Northwest, but there was something about the area that allowed me to look at it and picture something happening that I wanted to tell about. I'd never been able to write a book when I lived in Toronto ever. And so I wrote, and so my first six books were solely set in Seattle. um, And it just always felt right to me to have that as the setting. It's, and I loved my time there. I was there for eight years. But when I moved back home, um, I still wrote my last book in Seattle. It was harder because I'm not there. I'm not seeing it at my window every day. But um, for this book, I felt connected to my city in a way that I hadn't ever felt before. And I wanted to describe my version of the city. And so, as you know, from reading the book, you know, the, the Toronto that's in the book is not glitzy or glamorous, which Toronto can very much be. You don't really get a sense of how big the city is, which it really is. Um, you get a sense of how gritty it can be in certain neighborhoods. Um, and this specific neighborhood that I wrote about in the book is a neighborhood that I lived in for a year with my mom and when she was single. And uh, the park across the street, you know, was a real park, um, but I changed the name to Willow Park. And so it, it felt good to me this time. And I think as a writer, you just grow and you, you take inspiration from what's around you. And I, but I miss Seattle every day. It was definitely my second favorite place to live. And so I have no doubt it will pop up in future books as well, because it's always been, the setting for me has always been a really important part of storytelling. And this goes back to a critique that I got in one of my very first workshops for Creep. My very first novel I was workshopping it. And the instructor said, so I get that this book is set in Seattle, but it doesn't feel like Seattle to me. And the example she gave was when I read a Ramona Quimby book, and I love Ramona Quimby from when I was a kid, I know she's in Oregon, right? She's very much in Oregon. And I said, I want that same feeling here, if you can find a way to to put that in. And so I've never neglected setting because of that. And I wanted Seattle to feel one way and Toronto to feel another way. Um, cause I think they're like characters as well. They definitely come across as characters and the location and setting plays such an important part in the timeline of this book. It really felt like an extra character, um, in the different timelines, you know, Seattle being its own place and Toronto being its own place. Um, it was really, like, I am very articulate right now. It was so good. <laughs> um, it was so good. 
you're a mom. It's okay. <laughs> Where you're just, the thoughts, uh, are coming in yes. before my mouth can catch up with the words. <laughs> oh, and yeah, like I said, it's so hard to talk about thrillers because there are so many things I would want to ask, you know, about twist and you just, um, we can't do that because we want right. to experience it for themselves. Exactly. Exactly. It's always a challenge to know what points to mention and what points to leave out. Exactly. What is just enough to get people intrigued, but what isn't ruining some grand reveal? I actually had to like everything in the first three chapters is fine. You know, I, whenever I pitch this book, someone will go, that's a lot. Don't tell me. I'm like, no, this is all in the first chapter. It's okay. (laughs) Not a spoiler. You'll notice right away. Reading from the dust jacket. (laughs) (laughs) Keep it to that. But what I think is so fun about thrillers is like, it's really hard to I think you can attest to this. It's really hard to write thrillers with, you know, that, that big twist or that, like, like, how do you, you know, get your readers to like have their jaw drop to the floor. And then when you have a book that does that, this book did that for me, I kind of finished it and just went like, what, um, (laughs) you know, as the, as things unfold, I had to, I did have to make myself notes though, so that I didn't forget already, um, like yes. a couple of weeks removed of because of, you know, the nature of readers, it like so quickly forgotten, but I was Absolutely. looking at my notes and was like, Oh, okay, wait, spoilers. This is how it, Oh, and I like surprised myself all over again, that that's how the book. Thank goes. you. You know, it's, it's such a good question. And, um, uh, readers are so smart, you know, especially readers who love thrillers. There are there's a huge section of readers and I, I, in my personal experience, I would say like 85% of of thriller lovers are very actively trying to figure out the twists as they're reading the book. Mm -hmm. And that's why they love it. That's why they love reading thrillers. They want to know before the author tells them. And so to try and outsmart a seasoned thriller reader is so hard to do. And if I pull it off, it's usually by accident because I surprised myself. (laughs) because they're just, they're savvy, right? And so I think for things we do in the dark, I would hope that there are some surprising moments, but I actually focus more on the reveals being satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I gave myself permission to say, okay, if, if this twist is surprising, great, and, and yay for me and yay for the reader, but if it's not, and a lot of the times it just isn't, you always get those reviews. I saw that coming, I knew that was gonna happen. Oh, I was right okay, you were right. Was it satisfying when you discovered that you were right? Were you fulfilled? Was it fun to realize that you had guessed it? I try to make those reveal scenes really, really satisfying. And just like you said, you know, when you read a lot of books, you forget those things in the end, you know? And I know that for me, I can read something last week and then completely forget what it was about. And it's not that the book wasn't good. It's just, we have a lot of information in our heads. We're watching TV and we're reading all kinds of books all the time. But I think what lingers with readers, because I think it works for me as well, is how the book made you feel. So if you are reading a book that you loved and enjoyed and someone a year later says, oh, did you read that book? And you know, you read it. Likely you're not gonna remember every little thing that happened. You might not even remember the names of the characters, but you'll remember how that book made you feel when you read it. And if someone can tell me that, oh, I read your book and oh, it was so dark. Or, oh, you know, that was really, that was a really intense experience or whatever they say. 
um, I, I will take that and run with it because I, that's the most I can hope for as a writer. Mm-hmm. Not the details, it's the feelings, I think. I love that though, because I think there is something to be said about, you know, sometimes writing those twists just for the surprise of it or the shock of it. But I think that is nice when it did it feel satisfying. And I think for this, there were certainly moments that completely caught me off guard in this book. And then there were moments where it did just, it felt very satisfactory to kind of get that piece of information, right? The details around it. Yeah. 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 And I didn't want to shortchange anyone. I wanted you to get there and not have it be this twist that just it's like lightning quick. And then we move on. I want, I want it to be like an immersive feeling where you're sitting in it for a little bit going, Oh, I thought this was going to happen, but Oh my God, it's so much more than I thought it was going to be. Hopefully. I mean, that was, that was what I was hoping for. Yeah. This book was immersive. That would be the word I would absolutely use to describe this. I was 100% immersed in the lives of these characters and in these, these locations the whole time I was reading it. Um, I have a couple of questions for you that are not necessarily related to the book. Sure. Um, I'm curious if there, well, this is a little bit, if there's a character from this book that you would most like to get coffee with. (laughs) I would love to get coffee with Drew. You know, I, I love Drew. I just feel like he's, I don't know. He might be loosely based on a couple of guys that I grew up with. Probably if I think about it deeply, but you know, the, the friend turned possible crush turned possible soulmate angle. I think he would be really lovely to talk to. And I also think that he is a, a, a true crime buff. And, you know, when he was really caught up in, in true crime as a teenager to the point where he was obsessively following the Ruby Reyes trial and his mom was getting concerned. He was like, why are you so obsessed with a killer? Um, I can relate to that because I used to do that. There was a, a serial killer that was prowling in this area when I was in high school and I obsessively read everything I could about that too. So I think we would have a lot in common, he and I, and I, I think he'd be fun to go have, um, go eat dinner with. <laughs> I think so. That would be my pick as well. Um, and just to listen to how I imagine he talks. <laughs> yes. <I know. laughs> that honey voice. Yeah. That really nice um, podcasting voice. Right. Right. Um, I'm curious if there is, I know we're talking about things we do in the dark that comes out July 19th. uh, So we're not even there yet. And I'm going to ask you if there's anything else um, that you're working on already, or um, if, if there's anything you can even say, I know probably not. (laughs) It's, you know what, if I, if I knew what I was working on, I would totally tell people. And and Mm -hmm. I like to play it kind of Oh, it's so early. I don't want to ruin the idea. But the truth is, and I've never said this to anyone in any interview before. The truth is, I never know. <laughs> so, rather than say that, I've always said, oh, it's too early. I don't want to spoil the surprise. But I am working on something new. It's a thriller for sure. Um, I'm not super far into it, but I, I'm picking away at it, trying to let the idea build. And if I knew what it was about, I would say, and I'm not really sure. What I can see right now is I see, um, I see a brother and a sister and I think one of them might be a killer and the other might cover for that person. I don't know. And that's, that's all I can tell you. That's all I can see very clearly right now. So, but you know, things to do in the dark started the same way. It was mother daughter. And I had no idea what that meant. <laughs> so. I love that though. There's with authors, there's always something 
ruminating and it's so fun to hear. Um, I just know. wish I could articulate it. You know, I have so many writer friends who know exactly what they're working on and they know before they even begin, they have the pitch, they have the synopsis, they have the chapter by chapter outline and they're very efficient. And I'm so jealous because I don't know my work. It really seems like there, um, there's so many different ways to get to, you know, the final yeah. product where it's either very organized and know from the start, or it just comes together a lot more organically. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just love the opportunity to get to hear about your process and, and just how these books even come to be and how cool that we get to sit here and talk about books. I know it's the best job. <laughs> it really I, is. I am in awe. I got to do it at all. Um, it's right. Coolest thing. I'm curious if there's anything right now that you are currently loving, reading, watching, any obsessions in what I'm sure is limited free time. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, a lot of it's late at night when I should be sleeping. Right, but when the house is quiet, that's my time to watch all my dark stuff on on Netflix and Prime. Um, what have I been watching lately? I watched Dope Sick, mm-hmm. which is a limited series. I think it's on. I think it was on an HBO and it's about the, the rise of Oxycontin and stars um, Michael Keaton, who I think is such an underrated actor. He was, it was a really good show. I watched Severance on Apple Plus, which admittedly I didn't understand for the first four episodes, but it was so compelling. I kept watching it. And the end, the end of that season was very satisfying. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm watching, I watched Shining Girls with Elizabeth Moss and I understood none of it, but it was very entertaining. <laughs> Mm-hmm. It's just a very kind of spec fiction, um, a little bit over my head. Um, I love the U series. Uh, they're based on the Caroline Kepney's books. Yes. Um, with the, with Joe and I uh, watched all three seasons of that. I understand that seasons are beginning to diverge from her book, um, but I love them both equally. Mm-hmm. And what else have I been watching? I love Wordle. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I play Wordle every day. It's just enough puzzle for me. Anything more, I think would be too much puzzle and I would burn out. But I've been pretty good at playing Wordle regularly when the phenomenon started. Um, and I, that's pretty much, I think, what I've been into is, is and uh, and then just reading what I can read. And I, and I actually listen to a lot of audiobooks. Audiobooks are kind of my thing. And I do a lot of nonfiction when I'm listening to audio for some reason. And I'm, lis- I'm listening to an audiobook right now called Deep Work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I'd heard about it from another author at Thriller Fest. I was just there a couple weeks ago. Um, and it really talks about the importance of minimizing social media and distractions while you're working so that you can really get into, and I understand that because during the pandemic, a lot of what I did was shallow, right? It was just surface mm-hmm. level because you're getting pulled in 50 different directions. Um, but I miss the feeling of going really deep and losing sense of time and place as yeah. a mom, you never really get to do that anymore. I don't think, right. Like it just, yeah, there's you always know, got one ear, one eye, you know, open to what's, what disaster could be happening in the next room. Exactly. But that there is something certainly to be said to minimizing the other distractions so right. that you can get into that place of real work and creativity. Right. Yeah. I think it's just a matter of carving out like a, like a window and saying for one hour, I'll put my phone down. You know, I won't be on the internet and I'm looking at at my word document and that's it. And and I need to be here for that. And I'm making that a practice now, which is something I hadn't really done before. Yeah. And I, I think as well, like you said, just the pandemic, it feels like there were a lot of 
moments where you're just sort of like barely hanging on. And so it's easy to, you know, go to the social media, go to the news, do this, like being at home, all of these things. It, It feels like maybe we're adjusting to getting to a place of being able to minimize the distractions. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm not normally a person who works in short bursts. And I think the hardest thing about having a kid was learning that, oh, I can't stay up all night and just write. If I do that, I'll be destroyed the next day. And I've got a kid to take care of and he's up at six. Um, so I had to readjust my schedule. And then of course, readjust it again when everything locked down and I was writing in 15 minute increments if I was lucky because I was sitting beside him at the dining room table while he was in virtual school. And there he is with his other 20 classmates and the teacher trying to keep them engaged and they're six years old. So they're not, you know, I'd look up after 15 minutes and realize that the teacher is talking to my child and my child is not even in the room. Mm-hmm. He has wandered over into the living room and is watching Octonauts on Netflix. Oh my um, and it was like, okay, I can't, it, it was really difficult, you know, but all parents, I think experienced that exact same, what are we doing? here? we're barely hanging on. Yeah. I just have to reorient. And I'm, I'm wondering how it feels uh, now that things are becoming a new normal. You have some in-person events coming mm-hmm. up for this book. You are at Thriller Fest. How does that feel to, to know that you'll be, you know, back in front of readers? I've had to tiptoe back into it. You know, I, I was really stressed going to Thriller Fest because I had not been around other people in two years that I wasn't blood related to. And so it was, it was, it was nerve wracking to imagine like all the conversations and do I still remember how to talk to people in, in a way that's authentic, but, but, you know, it's still kind of small talk, right? Cause you haven't seen these folks in a really long time. So it, it was kind of a shock throwing myself back in, but I'm glad I did it. It reminded me of why I do what I do. Um, I'd forgotten how much I enjoy talking to other writers um, because they really get you in a way that your spouse, if your spouse is not a writer, will not ever get you. Um, so it was nice to kind of be in a room with other other writers who understand process and understand creativity um, and deadlines and all of that stuff. But um, I, I'm enjoying I'm enjoying the in person events. It's a it's a it's an exchange of energy that I think um, it's, it's not quite the same in virtual. Yeah. You know, I think for a podcast, there's no, it, it's a different pressure. Like we're communicating, but you know, when you're doing like a reading, you know, it's when you're, and you're doing it online, a, a part of what fuels me is, is seeing and feeling the reactions of the audience. And if you're doing a virtual event, usually you only see the host. You don't see all the audience members and how they're reacting to anything you're saying. And so it, it's been nice seeing faces and body language again. Yeah. And there's something to be said, like, I know just as a reader, I've really enjoyed the access that some of the virtual events have provided me to my favorite authors, but, but knowing it's so different than going to the library for the reading or to a bookstore for the reading, you know, cause I could watch an, an author talk you know, on my phone while I'm doing the dishes yeah. or doing something else. Yeah. And you're not committed to I'm here and I got to be 100% dialed in. And I kind of like that aspect of it too. You know, you can kind of do both things. Um, and I think having virtual events has really leveled the playing field for authors to be able to promote because not everyone can manage to travel to conferences or travel to a bookstore to do an in-person event. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, for those authors who never had the opportunity, having a virtual event 
as awesome. And I hope they continue. Like I hope we, we do both forever, you know? Yeah. I would love that. I love both because there is something so nice about the immediate access you know, and seeing an author, like in their home, if they're just doing the event from home or something like that, Mm -hmm. but then also Mm -hmm. being able to be in the same room and get that energy from the other readers that are looking forward to the book and and have the offer there. So I agree. I I hope that um, a nice mix continues. Me too. Me too. And just, um, as we wrap up, I'm wondering where our listeners can find you on social media. Or if you have a website. Yes. My, my website is jenniferhillierbooks.com. And I'm on Facebook at Jennifer Hillier Books. Instagram, Jennifer Hillier Books. Uh, TikTok, where I have like three followers. <laughs> I don't really understand TikTok yet. Jennifer Hillier Books. And on Twitter, I'm Jennifer Hillier. So I'm, I'm everywhere. I just need to be everywhere less. So I can get into that deep work that we were talking about. Yeah. Well, and- TikTok is a mystery to oh, most TikTok. people. So <laughs> it's got to be a generational thing. I think I, I, I miss the boat and my brain cannot process the technology that I need to have to be able to create videos that are that entertaining in 15 seconds or less. <laughs> I like, I think the appeal of TikTok is that anyone can go viral, but it's Absolutely. a lot of work to even get it's- that. It is. It's, it's more production than you would think. You think it's going to be this easy, casual thing, but no, there's actually editing involved and choosing music. And and do you put captions and, and right. It's very layered. Very Um, much so. And so as we wrap up, um, I'm wondering just if there's anything that you would want readers to take away from things we do in the dark. You know, I hope that they enjoy the book. It's a, it's probably the most vulnerable I've ever felt writing it. Um, it stars a, a Filipino character, and we really go in depth into her childhood and into her Filipino family. And um, I always worry that I'm not writing it well, or that you know, of course, you might offend somebody with something that you say that's your experience, but isn't someone else's experience. You know, this is certainly not the voice of a Filipino generation here. It's just one person's experience. Um, But it is personal to me. The book does feel personal and I hope people enjoy it and that it resonates um, and that they're left with, um, I I like to, to have, I write very dark stories, but I really do try to add an element of hope at the end of each one. Um, I don't want to leave everyone too depressed. <laughs> I know that I need that. And I, and I hope it just, it resonates and it sticks. You know, that's the ultimate compliment is when a book sticks with someone. This book definitely stuck with me. So for at least one reader, that's <laughs> what so I've walked Gemma. away with. But this, um, I loved the, the references, um, you know, to the Filipino culture and the Asian characters. I'm Thank half you. Japanese. So I, I relate to. That's amazing. Some of those like mixed moments. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. terminology and, and just differences in, you know, what you do with the side of the family versus the side of the That's family. That's right. Whatever. Exactly. Exactly. Different yeah. cultures and traditions and things like that. You know, and it's fun to write about that. But of course, you know, you're worried that your audience would be like, I don't understand what's happening here or this is not interesting to me. But it informs the characters in the end. So, you know, I love that personal touch for Thank parents. You. 
Mm-hmm. It, yeah. For me, I think we need more of that in books as well. I agree. I agree. Um, and, I, and it's a great time to really kind of tap in now. I think when I got started uh, back in 2010, it was a lot. I feel like the market was different and what publishers wanted and what readers expected was different. And I think that we are all collectively um, coming around to embracing diverse stories. So, you know, more, 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 more is all I can say. I agree. And I think it's so important. It seems like readers and, and, you know, audiobook listeners are more willing to learn. And so if there's a phrase they don't recognize or, you know, something that they've not heard of that they can, you know, look it up or still understand mm. it in the context of the story without, the story. without, you know, having to be taken so far out. But I okay. loved the references. They felt very like purposeful and, and not like we were just putting them there to have them mm-hmm. there. Um, they really went with the story. So I loved those elements thank as well. I appreciate that. Um, thank you so much for talking to me about things we do in the dark. Thank you. Uh, this Emma. book this is was out, really fun. Yeah, July 19th. So July 19th. It feels like it's out already because it's available through Book of the Month um, if you're a member. But um, yeah, July 19th, uh, a month from now. Ooh. About a month from when we are yeah. recording, we'll have a this book out so that I can talk about the actual things that happen (laughs) in this book uh, with fellow readers. Um, You're in for a wild ride, but yes, thank you so much for um, chatting with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy listening, everyone. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.